Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And, and this, this is Celebrity, Celebrity Memoir Book, Book Club. Club. Oh, that sounded nice. Yeah, you know, we've upgraded our sound system. And by that, I mean we got mic holders and I got a headphone. And I think I'm obsessed with listening to myself in the headphones. You have a very soothing tone. I adopt it when I can hear myself because I think I only think of myself. And so when I don't have to hear myself, I'm like, bobbity, bobbity, bobbity. And I have, you know, that weird bully laugh I do where I'm like, (laughs) I edit it out of every podcast. If I'm laughing, it's out. You have a cute laugh. I have a laugh like I'm inhaling. No, yours is cute. Mine sounds like King of the Hill. (laughs) That little laugh, I'm going to have to edit that out. Ashley. How was your week? What would you call that week? What would you title your memoir this week? I would title it The Pit. (laughs) (laughs) Amen, sister. (laughs) I definitely had what some would call a mental breakdown. I will say I did not have a good week either. And you came over yesterday and I could tell you needed a friend. And I was cocooned inside (laughs) of a duvet because I also was in a pit of my own. And I was like, you have to leave. I was like, I'm going back to bed. It was 6 p.m. Yeah, I was like a real black hole for a little while. And I was just like, I don't know that I can take on this black hole because then we might both get sucked into another dimension that neither of us recover from. It was neat, great, but I wallowed in it yesterday. And then today, I my parents got their second shot, so they're going to be fully vaccinated. So I booked a flight home for in a couple weeks. And so I think that'll put me in a better mood because I just haven't seen anybody besides you in a really long time. And I am toxic. So. And, and stand-up is starting to come back. And I keep on saying we're at the worst of it, but I think right now we're at the worst of it. You know, 90% of the effort goes into the 10% of the ending kind of thing. Yeah. I think I'm slowly climbing out of it. You know what I mean? It was just like a week of self-pity and nonsense. It's so funny because I had a bad week like that too. Yeah, where I was like, I can't like point to why I'm so sad, but I fucking was. <laughs> but I'm not that worn down over it overall because I think it's perfectly reasonable to be in a bad mood right now. And I feel like I'm coming out of it. Like there's certainly a light, you know, I purchased new chairs on Etsy. I got a new poster for my wall and it's like two cheetahs wearing sunglasses. Like what could be better? Nothing. Three cheetahs maybe, but <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't dare to dream. <laughs> Claire, if you were to write a memoir about this week... If you were to have the emotional energy to have picked up a pen and paper this week, what might you have written down as the title? Um, I think I would call it The End is in Sight, But Tonight is a Fright. Oh my God. I just can't. Oh, that's good. Thank you so much. Maybe I will write that memoir. I think like you, I had a hard week. I do feel like we're in this weird middle ground where things are coming back to normal. And now I'm remembering all the anxieties that I had been relieved of when the whole world came to a standstill. And it's just like the deep competition with other comedians. It's feeling like I'm not good enough every day. It's like the reminder that my career every single minute of my life is not where I'd like it to be. And that is like, it's a better Mm. stress because, you know, people aren't dying of coronavirus, but it is. I think any emotional distress, a distress is not what we want. Oh, I forgot to say my other news. I deleted all of my dating apps, the apps, the accounts, the everything. And I think that that contributed to another part of my depression this week is because I did realize that I was talking to people only out of boredom. I wasn't talking to anyone because I wanted to legitimately date them. I was just filling the time by like having random conversations with assholes on the internet. And I decided that that wasn't healthy and I just wanted to meet someone in real life, but there's nothing to do in real life yet. So I'm having a real void of a week where like, if I want to talk to anybody, it's you. Well, I feel like that's exactly how I feel too, but about comedy where it's a specific kind of helplessness. 
It's definitely a weird transition, I think, for everybody. And I hope it's not just for us. But we all settled into this weird new life that we all just hated equally. And getting back into our old lives, it's like the inertia of how do we pick up the pace. I hope that this doesn't sound too self-pitying because I didn't mean for it to. We're not trying to say it's been hard for us. I think... We hope that we are speaking to feelings everybody has of it sucks to be in a pandemic, but it feels like it's almost worse to be like slowly coming out of a pandemic and trying to refind your feet. Yes. Should we get into this week's episode? No. Oh, yeah. We should thank our reviewers, the highlight of our lives, our weeks, our everythings. Okay, first up, Jenny Hogan. Thank you so much for your review, L.A. Reed. Gosh, bless you. I adore you. Emma B. 2212, thank you. Five star from, and we got five stars from. I love that. Moms.com, (laughs) thebombs.com. Mad Sweatshirt, N11B, EM Striker. I think that's where we left off last week. We love five-star reviews. And so if you guys have yet to leave us one and you are an iTunes listener, I don't know, feel free to pop down and give us a five-star review. Okay, now should we get into this week's episode? Okay, now, actually, no. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Now I want to give a quick reminder. If you want more content, if you want more specifics, we're giving those updates on the Patreon, naming names, talking shit, Etc. We're also going to talk about Demi Lovato's miniseries on the Patreon. Also, I want to make note that some people, I believe, left the Patreon last month because they said we weren't as consistent as they would like. I do like to say that I think we put out three to four episodes a month on the Patreon, but we will be doing a Thursday night Patreon episode coming at you every week on Thursdays. So if that kind of consistency is what gets your rocks off... Your rocks are coming off. (laughs) Be careful and put a little tracking number on your rocks so you can find them later. (laughs) Now, do you want to say what you were going to say? About our book this week? Yeah. Yeah. This week we read A Scrappy Little Nobody by Anna Kendrick. Ashley, before we get into it, what was your feelings on Anna Kendrick before we, we opened this little collection of thoughts? Okay. So before we opened this scrapbook... I did not love Anna Kendrick. I had very mixed feelings about her because I like a lot of the things she's in, but her overall vibe does not quite vibe with me. Yes. I don't really know how to put my finger on what I didn't like about her because I think it was very rooted in misogyny. <laughs> I love that this podcast has been like a real wake up call to you and your yeah. hatred of women. Because you're, <laughs> you're a girl's girl, but you are not a woman's lady. <laughs> I have a lot of girlfriends. I love hanging out with the gals. I love shooting the shit with my bitches. <laughs> my stupid bitches. What I mean is I do think that I didn't like her for some pretty mixed reasons. I think some of them were founded, some of them were not. And I think that this book both confirmed and unconfirmed a lot of those things. I agree hundred percent. Something I had known going in was that I knew somebody who worked on the press for a little secret. What was that? Um, a little time. A touch of my hand. A simple favor. A simple favor. I had heard that her and Blake Lively got along so poorly that their entire press tours had to be planned separately and they could not be in the same room. Yes. I actually do want to go into that later after we've really like discussed her ins and outs and talk about these difficult to work with rumors. And it was hard for me to pick a side in that story because I also don't like Blake Lively. (laughs) 
But I feel like I don't like Blake Lively for a very valid reason. What is it? Do you remember when she tried to start her own lifestyle blog? Oh, do I? And it failed. So hard. I have never forgiven her for that. Because <laughs> I mean, what does a blog cost? It costs a GoDaddy landing page. I mean, truly, I've had blogs. Well, it wasn't just a blog. It was like a very confusing. She basically tried to launch everything that Goop has become at once. Like it was products. It was lifestyle. It was tips. It was recipes. It was. I still think she should have been able to pull it off, but it was also dark. It was like a black website. It was fucking weird. And she should have been able to pull it off. I'm not like disagreeing. I'm just saying it was. Did you go to it at all? Did you look at it? I have a vague memory of it looking like a wine label, like a black and white photo of a family. From looking at it, I can really identify why no one else wanted to look at it. (laughs) I just like really hold against her that failure. And I feel like there was other reasons I didn't like her. I feel like whenever I read something about her, she takes herself very seriously. I feel like she doesn't take herself seriously. Like, I feel like she has the same vibe as Anna Kendrick where like on the internet, she's silly, but in movies, she's glamorous. And so people are like, well, I guess Anna Kendrick's not glamorous in movies, but Blake Lively like tries so hard to be silly on the internet that it like bothers me because I'm like, why do you have to be silly? Maybe I also hate Blake Lively for misogynistic reasons, but I do maintain she should have been able to pull off any business. Okay, did you see that Blake Lively post where she edited shoes onto her own feet? <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean by silly. That's not silly like she's in on the joke. That was insane. But then she like riffed on it after she got caught. I don't think that even counts. To do it in the first place is truly unhinged and I need somebody to sit me down and explain why because it was it an open-toed crazy. shoe so it wasn't like it was keeping the foot fetishists at bay I think that she just like didn't want to be barefoot standing on the ground flat foot but she wasn't flat foot she was on her toes and that's why they were able to slip in a heel I think she was like we'll add shoes in post <laughs> <laughs> I think they were sitting in front of their own home you're allowed to be barefoot in your front yard maybe her feet are like flat and ugly <laughs> She's also very tall, so it's, like, very believable that she's got, like, a size 9, 10. <laughs> Maybe she's got something something long going down there, and it does not look good flat. <laughs> My friend saw Allison Williams in a Whole Food in Chelsea one time. She was, like, I was just struck by it. She was so skinny that her feet looked so big. <laughs> she was, like, she was a human letter L. Like, she needs to put on weight just to balance out those freaky-deaky feet. <laughs> That could have been the thing. Blake Lively and Anna Kendrick supposedly didn't get along. Blake Lively and Leighton Meester supposedly didn't get along. And it is hard to tell in those situations because Blake Lively is the common denominator. Is she the difficult one? Or is Anna Kendrick and Leighton Meester difficult? Or is everybody difficult? Anywho, let's talk about the book. Okay, so we'll catch you guys up on what we read that you didn't read because we're the book that reads for you. No, what are we? What? We're not a book. Claire, we're people. (laughs) We're the people. (laughs) So now that we've talked about how we think of Anna Kendrick, let's let's talk about how Anna Kendrick thinks of Anna Kendrick. How we think of Anna Kendrick is a funny way. (laughs) What we're thinking about when we're thinking about Anna Kendrick. (laughs) We're thinking about Blake Lively's feet. It's true. (laughs) So Anna Kendrick, let's start with her life. Where did she come from? She was born in Maine to what sounds like an unemployed father. She has an older brother. She talks a lot about feeling she doesn't fit in. Um, One of her big things in this book is how she's like an outsider, but she's an outsider to every single group of people in the world. Like she thought she was better than the average six-year-old, but then when she gets into acting, she thinks she's better than actors. She definitely doesn't have an easy time relating to anyone. I think she has these like weird movie like expectations for everything. And I think we see this a lot in people who 
become actors is that like everything is this weird lack of reality to them. I mean, she talks a lot about in the book. Every time she has a relationship, she has like a checklist of things she wants from the relationship, which is like best friends braid each other's hairs. Boyfriends send you love notes. Yeah. Your co-star will whatever. She has these expectations for how things should be. It gets very detached. And she tries really hard to paint herself as kind of like the downtrodden bullied girl who was excluded and not understood because she was just too different and too weird. But she tells this story that I think is very interesting about when she's in the sixth grade. She has a group of girls that sleeps over at her house every week. Yeah. And then one week she is gone. And that week the girls go to somebody else's house. This girl named Tori, who's not allowed at her sleepovers. And then it goes, cause we had all agreed that we didn't like Tori cause Tori was a bully and we didn't like her. So when I found out that they had all gone to Tori's house, I went up to them and reminded them like, we don't like Tori. Tori's not allowed to hang out with us. And so Tori turns those girls against her. And this is like this story about what a bitch Tori is. And I'm like, I don't know. And uh, it sounds like if you would just let Tori hang out with you, you could have kept your friends. And she's yeah. like telling the story about how she was a misfit and an outcast in her class. And I'm like, if you're having a sleepover with a group of people every week, how outcasted could you be? It sounds like you had a group of friends that you tried to control. I wouldn't even call this bullying. But it just sounds like you were a little control freak and people didn't want to be around you. Yeah. And I would also say throughout the book, she talks about not understanding the fashion norms and not fitting in fashion and hair and style wise. But then later in the book, she talks about like purposefully subverting the common looks and like trying to find the weirdest shirt at the mall. She goes back and forth between saying that she couldn't fit in and saying that she purposefully was trying to wear the weirdest thing she could find. So it's like, I don't know that you wanted to fit in. (laughs) It just seems like she was somebody who almost would have loved to be a loser because that meant she was like the main character of a different kind of book. But instead she was just a girl who sounds like she was kind of like a precocious little girl who people didn't like individually as a person and wasn't like bullied. It seems like she always had friends. She always had places to go. Her brother would take her to parties all through high school. Okay. Can I say this actually sounded like a very cool high school experience and it was nothing like my suburban high school experience. She's always talking about city kids versus suburban kids and her brother would take her to these like over night raves three hours away in Maine she was 15 years old and he was like you can't do ecstasy yet you're too young and she was like waiting to try she would go to these parties and dance and I'm just like I don't know man it doesn't sound she wasn't lame. some loser who just <laughs> sat at home all day on, before we can get, even get into the acting part of her life at this point I want to get into a big theory I have which is that first of all every actress has been bullied I mean January Jones most perfect looking white woman on the face of the planet is like in sixth grade things were hard for me people didn't like that I was so beautiful if you were ugly you were teased for being ugly if you were beautiful you were teased for being beautiful a lot of the beauties were teased for being a little too tall obviously not a problem for Anna Kendrick but everyone has a reason for why they were the most bullied person in their school and wouldn't you believe it at some point they developed all the confidence and charisma of an A-list star my thing is this everybody hated middle school I was the most popular girl in my middle school and I can say that with confidence you can (laughs) fact check that call the people from the Hudson School in Hoboken New Jersey ask who the Queen Bee was it was me My own friends were so fucking mean to me. Middle schoolers are mean to each other because none of us know who we are. We're all desperate to fit in. We all want everybody else to like us. We don't like ourselves. It doesn't matter if you're at the top or at the bottom. Honestly, if you're at the bottom, you might even be safer. I didn't bully the losers. I just didn't think about the losers. And they took that as being bullied. They were like, I wasn't invited to sit at your table. And I'm like... Yeah, okay. Well, Katie Pritchard just called me ugly to my face in front of everybody because the girls in the cool group were constantly trying to take each other down. Nobody left middle school unscathed except for like the absolute asexual pre-developed teens who 
had their own loser group and were happy in it. I actually think that there's the losers who are the main character in their own way because they're like these bullied outcasts or whatever. There's the popular people who are the main characters in this way. Everyone in the school is like, well, those are the popular kids. And there are the middles. I was a middle. And the middles were happy. But we also like bullied each other within our groups. Like we had our issues. Like everyone had their things. And I do think that no one will acknowledge being a middle. And I think most people were middles. And I think that there's a lot that you learn being a middle because you're looking up, you're looking down. You do feel like you're in this weird stagnant point in your life where you're like, okay, I'm not writing a book about this point in my life. I am a middle. I just think that that is an interesting and deeply relatable place to be, but no one... I've never heard a famous person acknowledge their life as a middle. I mean, I feel like my mm-hmm. friend Daphne always talks about like being in middle school and being like, I don't know people were making out. I don't know people were having sex. She was like, me and my friends, we love Lord of the Rings. I wore my Microsoft t-shirt that I got at like a, <laughs> a booth once. And she was like, we were happy as could be. Yeah, like me and my friends, we heard that this eighth grader was dating this freshman in high school and they had sex. And we were like, what are they even like, why, what are they even talking about? Like <laughs> for what? We're in eighth grade. This is like the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Like, cause eighth grade is that weird year where a lot of girls are like pretending to do things sexually that they actually haven't done just for clout. Yeah. It's that weird. I'm a fake slut for clout year of your life. And this one girl I knew came home and told everybody she had given a boy a blow job on a family cruise that she went on over spring break. And we were all like so grossed out and horrified. We were like, Oh my God, you could have a disease. We were all so afraid of diseases and she goes oh no no no, no. he wore a condom so Ew. there's nowhere I guess. and I remember <laughs> going home and telling my mom being like oh my god this girl in my class gave this boy a blowjob with a condom on and my mom goes I'll tell you right there it's a lie nobody has ever given somebody <laughs> a blowjob with a condom on. I remember like in sex ed being told that you should use condom for blowjobs and being like no one would ever do that I also remember one of my friends telling me that she got fingered and thinking that that was just like weird. I remember having a sit down conversation with my eighth grade boyfriend because he was in ninth grade and being like, I'm not ready for you to see my boobs. (laughs) What boobs, bitch? (laughs) What boobs then? What boobs now? The boyfriend that lives with you hasn't seen your boobs because they're not not real. (laughs) Oh, you got me. Hey, Ashley, can I ask you something? Yeah. Would you wear shoes if you didn't have feet? No. (laughs) Then why do you wear a bra? I don't. (laughs) Oh. A boy said that to me one time in middle school and I didn't know what the joke was and he goes, would you wear shoes if you didn't have feet? And I remember going, I think so, to keep up with appearances. And he goes, well, then why do you wear a bra? And I was like, I guess for the same reason. (laughs) You don't just walk around ankle down. You like get dressed. (laughs) Anyway, back to Anna. So meanwhile, while she's having a perfectly average, normal middle and high school experience where she's sad her boobs haven't come in yet. Me too, bitch. Some of us never got them. She's sad that she feels like boys don't like her, even though some of them do. And she just doesn't like the ones that like her. Which is, I mean, welcome to the club. Like someone put a rose in her locker. No one ever put a fucking rose in my locker. Yeah. I mean, she had a lot of things going on. Meanwhile, when she was like 10 years old, she loved singing and dancing. She had been in the local production since she was six, much like every other idiot actor we read about. She was so happy when she was six years old and she performed in a local community theater because she finally had purpose. Can I tell you something, actors of the world? If you're about to write a memoir and you're listening to this, which I imagine you are for studying purposes. No one should have a purpose before they're 27. (laughs) And most people die purposeless. Most people have to have a child to find purpose. And even then, they say it. A lot of people do not have an express purpose. To be a teenager with purpose is sick. To be a 12-year-old with purpose is actually perverted. (laughs) It's like not good for your frontal cortex to think you know what your purpose on this planet is. You should still be a muck up in the brain. Up in the noggin. Your skull should be mucky. Yes, well, your brain hasn't formed yet. Your brain is still Nickelodeon slime up there. How could you have a purpose within that slime? (laughs) Slime has no direction. It has no North Star. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha. 
anyway, they go down to New York City for a cousin's wedding. They cold call an agent, have her sing in like the lobby, and she nabs an agent. I guess she was an incredible singer because then they have her going out for commercial auditions all the time. And when she's young, 11, her mom would drive the six hours from Maine down to New York City, let her audition, and then whether or not she got it, they would drive her back. She says she never got parts because as a child, she thought it was like gross to be... A corporate shill, she says. <laughs> she didn't like all their fake earnest. Who is she the voice of right now? Is it like Amex or is it Hotels.com? <laughs> corporate shill. Anyway, she was like, all these kids who are fake enthusiastic. It's just disgusting to me. And she like was like anti-consumerism. She has this little line about it. She's like, I don't know why I need to cry over tangles in my hair. I've had tangled hair my whole life and I'm fine. And I'm like... All right, I get it. Capitalists, they create the <laughs> disease and then sell you the medicine and it's no tear shampoo. So her agent, instead of dropping her and saying you're a bratty little spoiled child who thinks you're too good and clearly isn't putting in the effort, they just stop sending her to commercial auditions. And by the time she's 11, she gets a Broadway show. <laughs> so she leaves seventh grade. She pays for an apartment in Yonkers. Her dad comes down because luckily he's a substitute teacher, so he's got time. He comes down and is her parent guardian and she's on this show called high society which runs for the full year she does it for a long time she is also in this time nominated for a tony award yeah when she is 12 years old she is nominated for best supporting actress in a musical yeah she loses to Odra McDonald. So she does this show. She gets very burnt out. It's interesting hearing about the life of a 12-year-old Broadway star because she's like, you're treated like an adult in the sense that this isn't pre-K. There's no good try. People are paying money. You do eight shows a week. You get Monday off, but there's no vacation. She was in it for like six straight months, which is a lot of fucking time Yeah, for a 12-year-old. She took like one day off and her dad like took her to a hotel in Connecticut or something because she just like needed a fucking break. And so she gets kind of burnt out. I guess when her contract's up, they take her back home and she goes back to middle school. This is where she had that horrible middle school experience where just normal things happened to her and some people liked her and some people didn't and she was sometimes nice and she was sometimes mean. She said nobody up there was that impressed that she had been on Broadway, which to be fair... I don't think anyone understood what was going on. They were like, oh, she left for a year. I do think that like with kids, first of all, impressive shit like that. If she had gotten clout for it, it would have lasted four minutes. I was going to say something really cool about being a kid is that your shitty personality will shine through. Like when you have to hang out with people every day at some point, you can only suck but so hard before people were like, I don't care that you have the biggest pool in the world. I can't. But like we see this later when she goes to the Sundance Film Festival. First, they're like, oh, Britney's at this thing called Sundance. Isn't that funny? Because you're also at a thing called Sundance. And she's like, yeah, it is the same Sundance. Right. And they did not get that. Flash forward. She goes home. I guess she's still sort of going on auditions. And she gets this movie called Camp. And she's mad because she has to play this character called Fritzy, which is like the ugly weird girl. She's 16 years old. She spends her whole summer making it. And it it's huge. I mean, it crushes at the Sundance Festival. She wins yeah. a Spirit Award for it, which is the indie film version of the Oscars. Yeah. So at 16, she's now been nominated for a Tony, won a Spirit Award, and been in like huge critically acclaimed film. That crushed. It doesn't sound like she's doing a ton of auditioning. Oh, we forgot to say. Mm -hmm. When she was auditioning for theater and yeah. she was 12, her brother was 14 and her parents at some point got sick of driving her down. So they would just put her on a bus with her brother go down, do the audition, and then turn around and get back on the bus and come home. And she talks about how she's like, I know city kids are like, what's the big deal? You're on a bus. But suburban parents are probably like, oh my God, that's so crazy. And she's like, it was fine. We were fine. We liked it. And I'm like, let me tell you, as a city kid... 
I'm 28 years old. I cannot imagine putting my 12 year old and my 14 year old on a bus for six hours and being like, come home when you come and home. And the craziest part of that story, her brother was the her chaperone to her audition when she landed this Broadway role. And because she ended up getting a callback, which was the next day, and it obviously doesn't make sense to go six hours back to Maine and six hours back. So her parents just called a hotel with their credit card number and her and her brother stayed in a hotel in New York City for three days with no supervision while yeah, she was getting callbacks for this role. And then she ended up landing the role. But like, I mean, they were like home alone, lost in New York, but like with permission. <laughs> with permission and a job to get. And a stipend. <laughs> She's really big on saying that her parents are not at all stage parents. They're just supportive. I mean, I guess they bet right. I mean, she's not a drug addict. She's a huge superstar with an incredible trilogy under her belt. But that's quite the risk to take because this was the 90s. I don't know. To send your child to Port Authority. I wouldn't send my 12-year-old to Port Authority now. I wouldn't send like a 15-year-old to Port Authority now. I don't go to the Port Authority. I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> that's not true. I we love, love the, the Port, Port Authority. Authority. <laughs> There's a bowling alley in the Port Authority. So she she's on Broadway. She crushes. She's in this movie. It crushes. She finishes high school. She graduates early. She graduates a year early that, so that she can do a little night singing at the New York Opera with Claire Bloom, who I actually don't know who that is, but apparently she is like an, an uber Shakespeare legend. This is now, she's 16 at this point, and she's done her third major event. Instead of going to college, she decides to go out to LA. She says that she had no connections out there because obviously all of her previous work had been in New York in the indie scene and on stage. She didn't have any experience really with studio film, with TV really at all, but she had done a pilot. She doesn't talk about this, but she had filmed a pilot and she had money from that. She's like, I was living off the money I got from a pilot that went nowhere. And I was like, okay, yeah, but you still booked a pilot. So you went out to LA with three major things under your belt and work. Yeah. And then she talks about how she's out there. This is like part of what put me in such a bad mood because she was talking about how hard it was because she didn't know what she was doing. And an example of this is she went out without a car. And it's just like, I don't know, man. By 21, Twilight had come out and she had a major role in that. And by 22, she's an up in the air for which she is nominated for an Academy Award. Yes. And it is just very hard to hear her talk about going out to LA. And her big thing is... She talks a lot about having no backup plan. And it's like, at 18, I actually don't think you need a backup plan because you have the rest of your life to figure shit out. If you're successful before the age that most people have left college and gotten a first job, then none of your worrying counts because everybody else hasn't even begun their professional lives yet. Yeah. And she just talks about how, as Ashley said, she didn't have a backup plan. And this is what made her successful because like, if she had ever stopped to consider something else, maybe she wouldn't have made it. But it was like that gumption and that need to succeed and that fire under her belly that allowed her to thrive. I just really want to read a book from one of these nobodies who went out there with no backup plan and really wished that they'd had a backup plan. As two people who we don't have backup plans. I want to say I have a backup plan. I mean, we don't have backup plans. Like we both have day jobs, but she kind of suggests that by having a day job, we're like not believing in ourselves or not giving ourselves the fire it takes to really make it happen. And I'm just like, I don't know. I think I just have the foresight to see. I mean, I was a waitress for the first year. She never had to even be a waitress. That's what I'm saying is like, she didn't have a backup plan or a day job, but she had savings from booking stuff within her dream. She moved out there when she's like 17, about to turn 18. And then she booked this other movie called Rocket Science. Yeah. Which also went to the Spirit Awards. It seemed, I think she won an award for that too. Yeah. So at like 
She was nominated. She didn't win. And then by 21, Twilight came out, which means that she was booked and filming it by 20. So there was like never really more than a three month period of her life where I think she didn't know what she was doing next. If anybody has a suggestion of a book of somebody who like blows up later in life, and I'm not even meaning too late, just like in their 30s, because all these books are like, I didn't know if I was ever going to make it. And then when I turned 16, I booked... (laughs) Friends. (laughs) Friends. <laughs> I was Ross. And that turned my life around. Yeah, I do think it's hard to read these books where people are like, you just have to believe in yourself and the fact that you have had an agent since you were 12. I mean, look, I don't begrudge her for it. I think clearly she is very talented. I mean, the words speak for themselves. She's not just some kid whose parents like hoard them out. Ashley America Olsen. Love them, but I don't think anybody's going. They were destined for the stage. They were just there first, and then yeah, they and they were, hate acting. They <laughs> hate acting, and they had a ton of success. That I think you would say, if they had started later in life, would they have had it? Probably not. I mean, they couldn't have been the youngest millionaires if they had started later, because then they wouldn't have had that million so young. <laughs> and I think this goes back to her need to be relatable that we're going to talk about later. And why when these successful women feel the need to be relatable, it it misses the mark so often. She like really tries to kind of pitch this part of her life as sort of a, the story of the underdog who makes good. And it is not that story. That's not this story at all. It's somebody who always had success since the beginning. She had success after success. She just kept getting the part. And so for her to try to write it in this like relatable, like when I got to LA, I didn't even have a car. I was living in this shitty apartment with Ikea furniture, blah, 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 blah. I didn't know if I would make it. I didn't, some days it was like the hardest year of my life. And then the next year I was in Twilight. So she gets, obviously, she gets Twilight. She gets Up in the Air, which changes everything for her. She does have pockets of interesting things. And we'll get back to this. She talks about those few years when she before she was famous. I mean, Twilight didn't make her famous. You know what I mean? She was like the kooky best friend in some scenes. She talks about dating. We'll get back into that. The parts that were interesting were the kind of attempt at observational, experiential humor. And I think they got close to the mark. I don't think they would have made it into The New Yorker, but I do think they were interesting. And then she talks about being in Up in the Air, which was an indie film. She did not get paid a lot. She paid rent with Twilight money, but that was barely covering it. And she talks about this weird year where she's nominated for an Academy Award, but she has no money. They're flying her all over the world now because this movie is clearly a hit. It's clearly an award contender and they're flying her all over the world to promote it. She sends Warner Brothers an email saying, in the next city, can you put me in a less expensive hotel and send me the difference? Because I'm struggling with rent. She's like, it's crazy because I'm broke at home, but I'm also being flown around borrowing clothes and of it's mine. I can't afford these hotels. I can barely afford car insurance. And I do think that was an interesting look into a weird moment in time of stardom. And I do think she does a very good job of explaining how overwhelming and lonely press is because you're like just every day you're in a different city. You're pretending to be somebody. You have to answer all these questions. You have no control over who you are. You're just trying to be what they want from you. And it's like the same questions. She talks about press junkets where they bring 70 journalists to come talk to you throughout the course of the day. And it's the same question every time. And it does seem very lonely. And she talks about just being flown to a different city every day. Mm -hmm. I mean, these radio gigs, these early morning gigs, it, it does seem brutal to just be parroting the same bullshit not being able to sleep in your own bed. And I don't think she's ever had friends. I know. It <laughs> she is has hard. these two like gay guys that she's roommates, but I don't, she seems like somebody who is forever lonely. I feel like she doesn't always get along with her cast. I think she has a really hard time relating to people. She seems like a bad concoction of deeply anxious, but overcompensating all the time by being like bossy and dismissive as opposed to like overcompensating by being likable and and easy to get along with. I think she has this like overwhelming vibe of I'm going to reject you before you can reject me as like a friend, as a partner, as, as almost everything. I mean, she literally talks about how she gives off the vibe of don't bother me. Like yeah. that's her forever vibe. 
And I'm just like, okay. So of course, as you guys know, now we're all caught up. She does fine. She gets trolled. She gets pitch perfect. She's very successful. Yes, she has a house. And that's where it ends because she wrote it when she was 30. So (laughs) it ends in the midst of her success that is continuing to grow every day. I mean, they hadn't even filmed a simple favor. A simple favor when she wrote this. She didn't even know that she would hate Blake Lively yet. (laughs) We know more than she knows. I want to talk about the structure of this book before we talk about the tone of this book. Okay, so the structure of this book is it starts out as a memoir. It's very chronological. There is a very distinct through line to it all. You're really like building up through these important moments. As Ashley would say, the what I've done memoir. And then it kind of transitions into the personal essay, somewhat who I am, but also somewhat observational humor about what I've seen in Hollywood. Yeah. And it isn't quite in order. She'll go like two steps forward, one step back, hopping around by category. So like first she's talking about like life and like the friends she made in LA. And then she's talking about work and then she's talking about clothes. And then there's some miscellaneous stuff. And then she goes back to like being 21 and learning things. So I actually think this middle part is what the book should have been. I think that these little chapters kind of take a moment in time and make a larger argument. They have more of a dialogue. They have more perspective. They have more reflection. And I think if you're 30 writing a memoir, that's all you can do. I think you can write observational pieces of humor or essays, little dialogues on things you've noticed and seen. The first half of the memoir was somewhat interesting because I didn't know she was a child star. But honestly, hearing about somebody's childhood is not that interesting. And she like gives us so much about her family, which I don't give a fuck about. Like I get that her brother is cool, but like I did not need a chapter on like his personality. What comes across is how deeply guilty she feels about being successful. She calls her dad like the smartest person in the world she calls her brother the smartest person in the world she calls her mom like the best person in the world she feels yeah. so bad that they're poor <laughs> and this doesn't sound like she talks to them that much anymore she's like i never get a chance to see them because of work when she goes to her parents house like, she sleeps on the couch and it's like buy your parents a bigger house i want to say about the middle chunks the essays I think that they are what the book should have been, but I also think that they should have been better. Like, I don't (laughs) think any of the essays had a thesis. And I think they all could have. Like, all of them could have been re-edited into, like, really good essays. I just think the difference between what they could have been and what they are is the difference of, like, someone who's a good writer. Everyone thinks they can be David Sedaris. And it's actually a very hard thing to take a very specific personal moment in time and then make them universal, make them funny, and then give them an outlook on life and a lesson. And that is like a very difficult thing to do. I think she actually kind of does it well with dating stories. She has this first boyfriend and that ends because they have this weird conversation where he's like, it's kind of a turnoff to me that you like having sex. And I mean, it's sort of an interesting look at what it's like to be 19 dating a guy who has this like weird toxic idea of sexuality. It's like very Madonna horror. It's very rape culture that this idea that if your girlfriend likes to have sex with you, then that makes her a whore. So the only way that you can respect your girlfriend is if she doesn't like sex, which means that she's not really consenting or she's every time being tricked into having sex. I mean, you're like, you want me to be tricked into having sex? Like, you're my boyfriend. This is what we've agreed to. So you don't respect me because I consensually am agreeing to the sex that you are having with me. And he like tells her that the problem is she initiates sex too much. It's so gross. And I do think that that was like an interesting little story because I do think that that is a specific moment in time to her that has universal implications and she has a retrospection on it and she's able to look and be like, I see now that that was horrible and that that's a like very toxic thing and I'm proud of myself for trying to not let that affect me. And I think she writes it in a way where it's like, if you were a young girl reading that, it would have a lesson. And I also think that she like writes that way in that, in the story about the guy she met on that boat trip where like he makes that comment about her body. He's like, oh, don't eat too many chips. You're the only girl here who's not related to me. And I'm going to see you in a bikini or something like that. And she's like, then 
as like a 21 year old dumbass, I thought that that was kind of charming that he was so like forward and douchey. And now I'm like, I should have stabbed him with a key. I mean, the amount of times that guys said like fucked up shit to me that I was like, oh, that doesn't flirting. ring right. But I think it's flirting. That is good stories. She has a story about being obsessed with a guy who has no interest in her and all the way she convinced herself that he was interested. And she's like, look, I can't stop calling him because then we would never talk. But that doesn't mean he doesn't like me. <laughs> and I found that to be very relatable. And I thought it had an interesting like she was like, I'm so grateful. I'm not into guys like that anymore. I'm so grateful that I'm into nice guys who like me back. And that is just something that comes with age. And at the end of the book, she says something like, I know everybody says they wish they could be young again, but she's, you could not pay me to be 21. And that is my feeling. There's not a year of my life that I look back. I'm like, I wish I could be her again. I think life gets better as you get older and you become more sure of who you are and you become more confident in yourself. You couldn't pay me to be 16. You couldn't pay me to be 21. Honestly, when I was 27, there was a pandemic. So I don't want that age back either. I do think it's better to get older and become a better version of yourself. And I do think in that way, she was able to share that nugget of wisdom in a well-articulated way where she's like, these are all examples of things I would never let happen to me now. And that can only come with age. You can't go around them. You have to get through them. So the dating part was good. Uh, yeah. And I think that's cool to be reading about the experience of this movie star. At this point is having success and like still dealing with these awful boys. And I'm like, yeah, that is life baby she talks a lot about imposter syndrome i do think that's real there's this weird disconnect between being flown around the world and then having a twin-sized ikea bed at home yeah and like last summer you were obsessed with a guy who wouldn't call you back you know what i thought was really relatable about how this guy was always a dick to her no matter how hard she tried and when the last times they ever spoke she made him breakfast she gave him a bj she did everything she could to be the perfect little side chick and then when she was pulling out he calls her and she's like oh my God, he misses me. He likes me. And when she picks up, he goes, hey, I'm right behind you. You're doing the thing I hate where you don't use your blinker. I hate it when people do that. And she was like, I can't believe after that whole morning, he called me to criticize my driving. I think most women have been that experience where you look back and you go, I cannot believe I allowed somebody to treat me like that. Like what a job. And I thought that was cool. Like I thought to be rude to somebody all the time was a sign of his superiority. And I look back and I'm like, it's a sign of your own insecurity and loserness. Because if you really like look down on me, you just wouldn't date me. I mean, I like really admire having those stories in there because again, it is easier to not talk about the embarrassing situations. Like when I think on past relationships and like the way I've let guys treat me, I'm like, it's really embarrassing, but it is a thing that literally everyone Everyone does. I think the problem with memoirs is you can't really talk about something that you haven't resolved in yourself. And I think at the time of this memoir, it seems like she has a boyfriend that she's still with and it seems like they're very happy together. I think she had resolved the boy drama or even if she hadn't been with somebody, you get to 30 and you don't let people treat you like that anymore. And so you can look back on it with some resolution and book closed and be like, here's what I think happened there. I know I can't teach you anything because nobody can be taught out of it. They can only grow up from it. But then the rest of it, her desperate need to fit in her imposter syndrome, her wanting to be the underdog I think she wants to be the underdog because then that makes her success likable. And she's so afraid of her own success and feels so bad and guilty about it. I mean, not that like it was handed to her, but she is somebody. It wasn't that hard. It's weird because she talks about being lazy. She has this comment about filming Twilight and she's like, I can't believe the extras were there. I was, I hated it. And it was so cold and hard. And these extras, she's like, I wouldn't have done what those extras did just to be on set. And I'm like, well, then lucky you, you got to skip to the top. (laughs) I think that the way that she reconciles these issues that she has with her imposter syndrome is by just like talking shit about herself constantly. It makes it really unlikable. (laughs) 
Well, this book made me sad, I think, because it made me think about all the things I don't like myself. It made me feel bad about myself for one, not being as successful as her. (laughs) (laughs) And then two, the way she shits on everything. It's just so unlikable. It's such a blatant defense mechanism. And I think about the way I shit on stuff. And it's hard because now I'm like trying not to shit on this book. Like I was worried coming into this episode that we were going to be negative Nellie's. And I think we both thought we would hate this because we tried to read this book in the summer and we both read the introduction and we're so turned off because she writes this book and in the introduction, she has this conversation with her brother about how she thought about when she was 16 years old, she moved to LA, she didn't know a soul in the world and she just tried to make it happen. And she was like, I, was, I can't believe I had that kind of bravery. I was just a scrappy little nobody and I made it happen for myself. And she's like, and now I'm scared that I don't have that same kind of gumption. I don't have that same kind of like risk it all mentality. I don't know that I would do anything reckless these days. And I'm gonna be like, first of all, now that I know what I know, it wasn't that reckless. It was actually exactly the right move for you to be making. You had all of the signs. You had a literally Tony nom, a spirit award. You had the best of the best telling you you were among the best of the best. And you were 18 or 17, whatever. Like a risk when you're 17 years old, unless it's a physical risk, like cliff diving where you could literally die. A career risk before the age of 50 is not a risk. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, nothing was riding on it. You could go back to college and still graduate on time. But if it had not worked out in a year or two, the problem is you're too successful. You really can't, like, what could you risk being in a bad movie? Rob Lowe made so many bad movies and he's still got a book. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you're sitting on Pitch Perfect money. Like, no matter what you do at this point, you have an Academy Award nomination and trilogy money. You're safe. So yeah, you can't take a risk because you built too solid a foundation for yourself. I'm so sorry. And I think we both read that line and just the idea of being 30 and being like "Mm, I used to be nobody and now I'm too famous to make a decision I was just like fuck you bitch I think the book was better than the intro I think somebody somebody should have told her to take that intro out yeah I think that there were other moments of actualization and awareness one of the sections where she is being her little like contrarian dickhead self but then comes around is this little chapter that she writes about fashion, which I actually enjoyed. I liked it too. And I felt like I really took this book and reflected on myself. I'm like, I don't want to be the person who shits on everything. It doesn't read well to be the person who hates everything. It doesn't make you look good unless you're like Fran Lebowitz and you can pull it off. If you're not going to be the best of the haters, you cannot be a mediocre hater. So she writes this chapter on fashion where she talks about how she like never had any respect. She thought like clothes were stupid. She thought dressing cool was stupid. And then meeting designers she like really discovered the artistry of fashion she's like oh these people are artists too these people who are designing these clothes whether or not people like them is their careers and so me being like oh clothes are fucking dumb acting is dumb everything's dumb everything is people's work (laughs) literally everything is stupid yeah and that realization i found to be very wholesome okay so one part that i still think kind of flopped for me in this actualized section where she's talking about discovering the art within fashion is she's talking about Olivia Palermo and Alexa Chung and saying that these like fashion icons, they're known for wearing clothes well because they're tall. And she says that their best fashion advice is always wear what makes you feel confident. And she's like, who has that help? Who is out there thinking like, I don't dress to make myself confident. I wore this stupid thing that isn't making me feel confident. No, that does help a lot of people because a lot of people dress for what's fashionable, not what makes them feel confident. They like wear what they think is cool or what they think they have to wear to fit a certain social standard, not the clothes that make them feel the best. So that actually is really good advice, I think. Also, it's just like in this one moment of opening your eyes and being like, I actually respect somebody else for what they do. Having to like end that chapter with bringing somebody down was such a weird moment. I think she does something that I'm trying to be more aware of just because I hated it so much in her personality. I think I could define it as when you're so self-deprecating 
everything you bring down everybody around you. Yeah. So she has this moment about, she played this character, Fritz, as we said in this movie, Camp. And she's like, either you haven't ever heard of it or it is your Bible. She's like, it helps so many people come out to their parents. It was really kind of the first of its kind where it's all about gay theater kids. And it, it, it's camp. I mean, to a lot of people, it's it's canon. It's camp canon, honestly. Yeah. And she's like, yeah, nobody's ever heard of me, but the people who have, it meant so much to them. And then she talks about meeting this fan one time who comes up and is like, oh my God, I loved your character so much. I named my dog and my car Fritzy. And she's like, so I made a mental note of her in case I ever had to write a police sketch about who broke into my house. And I was just like, I don't know, you just did this whole thing about how a lot of people didn't know about it, but the people who did it meant a lot too. And then you talk a lot about feeling alone and feeling a loser and how anyone who liked this movie was probably a loner or a loser. And then for somebody to come up to you and be like, thank you for making me feel less alone, essentially, and for you to put them down and call them a freak is, like, so fucked up. And I think she's trying to be self-deprecating, being like, ah, I had a fan. They're crazy. But it's also, like, actually, I don't know. Then why do you do it? If you don't want people to connect with your work, then why do you do it? (laughs) And why are you going to write a whole book about what it's like to feel so alone and so different and, like, such an outcast if one person picks up your book and goes, hey, I feel that way, too, and you go, what, are you obsessed with me? What is the point of making art if not to find a common bond with people? And so I found that to be a turnoff, but I do think it's a symptom of her trying so hard to be relatable and likable that she has to be self-deprecating, but in a way that actually takes people down. Let that girl like you. Completely agree with that. And I think that she does it in a different part too, where she's participating in the Oscars and she talks about the people who are stand-ins for the rehearsal. I guess the way that they rehearse the Oscars is that they have all the presenters come and they have to fully go through the entire ceremony. And in the audience, they obviously don't make the audience come two days in a row. They have a group of extras who come and they they stand in as the people who are winning awards and they just pick an award at random. And I guess that one of the things that these extras do is they make up speeches as if they are those people, like the people winning the awards. And she was presenting an award for cinematography and someone came up and like made a full speech about what it was like to work with Quentin Tarantino, like a fully made up thing. And it sounds like maybe that's a traditional thing that they do and it seemed kind of fun and she just kind of like makes fun of them saying like the screaming process to find these extras seems to be like kooky but harmless we hope and it's like I don't know why you have to shit on them that sounds like a pretty funny thing to do like you have to do this run through you have to be up on stage for a certain amount of time and she's like I thought they'd be like uh speech 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 and the fact that they make it more fun sounds kind of fun and she like has to just tear everything to the ground Yeah, it made me not like who I am even. Another thing I noticed that is very 2016 and it's just funny to show how far the Me Too movement has sort of taken us or maybe it's just how much my Brooklyn bubble I'm enveloped in. But her biggest punchline is calling somebody a prostitute. She loves to call people prostitutes. I mean, she does it like 20 times throughout the book. And I wonder if she ever read it the way we had to read it, like in one full sitting, if she would realize how often the butt of the joke is calling somebody a hooker or a prostitute. And I do think she is obsessed with this whore Madonna thing. And I know it's, we're all raised in the patriarchy and we're all afraid of our own sexuality and God forbid, but it's everything from stories about being little and the way her mom would let her wear kind of like slutty halter tops in sixth grade so that she would get out of her system and not look crazy in high school to if a guy she like dated somebody else, she would have the whole cast be like, she's just a toothless prostitute who couldn't give a hand job. And like her biggest fear in life is like having to become a prostitute and this girl's a prostitute and you're dressed like a hooker and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And it's just like, it is jarring to see. It's unoriginal. At this point, I'm like... Leave the hookers alone. They're working harder than you, They're Anna. working really hard. I wanted to say that we have not yet talked about... So the book is called Scrappy Little Nobody, and it is about how she's small. 
And she like truly is obsessed with being small in a way that I find alarming. And maybe this is why I hate short people. Maybe it wasn't even misogyny at all why I didn't like her. It's just because she's short. The amount of times that she calls herself tiny, especially when she talks about growing up and how being the tiniest person at school, at first it was cute and then it became an enormous detriment in her life. And I'm like, I cannot fathom that it was that much of a detriment in your life. Like it doesn't seem like it could possibly have been that hard being short, but sure. About the author in this book is Anna Kendrick is shorter in person. Like later in the book, she talks about her tiny little feelings, her tiny little this, like she's obsessed with being tiny in a way. This is why people hate short people. Okay. So like, I'm sorry for the way that I've talked shit about short people in the past, but I want you guys to know that like, this is how it happens. (laughs) It does feel a little chicken and eggy. As a spectator, because you have spent a lot of your life hating on short people. And now for you to be like, get over it, you're short. This is why we hate you is because you feel so defensive about it after you have been truly on the attack. I know. And I, that's the thing is I'm like, how hard could it possibly? But I don't think I've ever like called anyone short to their face. I think I like talk about it as a joke. And it's literally only about... It's mostly about dating. And then I joke about it overall because I think it's like funny to be like, it's not about dating. I hate all short people, but really it's about dating. The weirdest thing about this whole book to me is there's this like bonus chapter at the almost very end. It's the penultimate chapter. And this is where it got really like, I wish I could be in the New Yorker. It was very shouts and murmurs reject. And it was about how she wishes she could design parties for her friends and then she just like talks about what kind of party she would have for every holiday and it's just St. Patrick's Day we would have beer and wear Irish stuff and then Christmas there'd be a lot of decorations I really skimmed that part because I skimmed it too once I read the first two holidays I was like oh this is literally just party planning it was like a weird indulgent thing that I think should have been edited out it did not add much it did not add really anything and it made me wonder if there was like a page requirement that she was trying to hit Something Ashley reminded me about this book was that it was written in the heyday of her Twitter career. At one point, she was considered like a very funny on Twitter actress. And I do think she probably thought she could submit that to the New Yorker. It might have gotten rejected. And then she was just like, we'll put it in the book. I mean, she was big on Twitter in the 140 character days of Twitter where you would pretty much just say that you don't like something. And everyone was like, my God, relatable. I wanted to talk about the chapter where she discusses how nice is not the opposite of mean. Nice is the opposite of difficult when it comes to actresses. Because I thought that that was interesting insight. I thought that was was well put. Because that's what I was going to say. We talked earlier about how she has a reputation for not getting along with people necessarily, especially Blake Lively. And it makes me wonder, I definitely have heard that she's difficult to work with. And I wonder if she just is particular to work with. Like, I wonder if she's genuinely a difficult person or if she just has standards for the things that she's in. Because clearly... I mean, she's been in pretty good projects and it must mean that she's smart and knows what she wants. But if you don't just go with the flow, they call you difficult. And I wanted to say, I'm sorry, Anna, if that's the case, if that's the case and we've been calling you a bitch this whole time because you were just careful, I feel really bad. So luckily for us, Anna put at the end of this book, a reading group guide. So we're going to end this episode by asking each other one question each. Unfortunately, I just read through all the questions and they're all kind of the same question, which is like a belated punchline for, I guess, anything she went to sleep on that night and was nervous would come back to haunt her. I'm going to ask you this one. The book opens with the author's mother wishing for a few stories in which Anna comes across as thoughtful and or generous. Did Anna's mother get her wish? Was there a single story where Anna didn't seem entirely punchable? Um, there's definitely stories where she doesn't seem punchable. I don't know that she ever seems thoughtful or generous. I agree with that, but I also, why did she put this in the book? It feels very Cassie David, like nobody asked for this. If you think that this whole book made you seem like someone should punch you in the fucking face, why did you publish it? I do think it started memoir and ended funny essays. 
interesting. Do you read Shouts and Murmurs in the New Yorker? Sometimes. This feels very the ultimate a Shouts and Murmurs listicle. Yeah. As does that party planning section. I think it, it started out memory and then she, as she got more comfortable and probably was told she was more funny, she kept adding more. Okay, I'll ask you this. In this section about Alexa Chung and Olivia Palermo, the author viciously maligns two innocent and very fashionable girls. Is Anna a shady basic bitch or the shadiest basicest bitch? Okay, so I feel like these two answers are pretty similar, the two choices she gives <laughs> us. I would say overall, I think that she should have cut it out and her acknowledgement here that she shouldn't have said it is makes it even weirder. I like remember reading that and almost having to read it twice because I could not follow because it seemed like such an earnest moment where she recognized somebody else's vulnerability. She talks about meeting that fashion designer after her show and seeing that she was just another fellow artist worried about how her art would be received. And then to just like randomly pick two hot girls and just talk shit about them made no sense because it didn't add anything. I think maybe that's likable to see that she's so nervous and somewhat aware. But also I find it unlikable that she seems so aware that it was not a good move and yet she left it. Okay. So post reading this book, how have your feelings on Anna Kendrick adjusted? I would like to almost say not at all. I think any misconception I had about Anna Kendrick was just because I hadn't thought hard enough about her. (laughs) I do think she's actually exactly who she plays in Pitch Perfect which is a girl who in no way has is an outcast except for her own decision that she's too good for everybody else. I think she's very self-deprecating, but in a way where she then hurts everybody's feelings. I feel like she's the yeah. kind of girl who comes in and as a defense mechanism just like tears everybody down and is like, nobody likes me here. And it's like, yeah, because you call all of her favorite TV show ugly. Like she would show up to your American Idol viewing party and then talk about what a shitty show it was the whole time. And you'd just be like, okay. You're just hurting my... I did actually set up a party for this. Yeah. I meant it. I feel like... I think that we both have a tendency to be like overly shit-talky. And I think we're both trying to be more positive, which is, again, we're talking shit about this book, but whatever. I do think that like she is someone where if she mellows out a little bit, I would like her. But I do think she seems like me at like my worst almost. Like me at my most nervous. Like me at my showing up to a comedy party where I don't really know anybody and starting a conversation by being like, don't we all hate this person? And then later being like, I guess that wasn't a great way to start a conversation. I guess that guy was dating her. <laughs> but I also think, I guess, obviously she's talented. I'm, I'm impressed by her resume. Clearly she she don't miss often. She likes swinging a hit. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think it was funnier than most of the books we've read. And I think I would rather watch her try to be relatable about how much it actually sucks going to the Oscars than watch Rob Lowe talk about how great it was to have Roman Polanski hooking up <laughs> with the with the model the fuck. I mean, I do feel like it was an attempt at humor. It was better written than most of them. I see why she was good on Twitter. I would rank it in how in many a, worms out of five? <laughs> for a regular book, two point five worms. For a celebrity w- memoir, I'm giving it four worms. I would give it like three point eight worms. Beautiful. And you guys, be sure to join the Patreon this Thursday. Demi Lovato. What a whirlwind. Check it out. We love you. Bye. Bye.